podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another installment of our ongoing series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? And- Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. last episode, we talked a bit about how Hedda Hopper was able to overcome a number of challenges, including her own lack of reporting experience, thanks to a few powerful people supporting her behind the scenes. Hopper's rapid rise over her first five years as a nationally syndicated columnist was fueled in part by a coordinated campaign against her main competitor, Luella Parsons, spearheaded by the founder of some of the biggest media brands of all time. But Hedda deserves some credit, too. World War II, which hung over Hopper's first years as a columnist, brought issues of nationalism, tribalism, and racism into everyday discourse. This discourse gave Hopper an opportunity to define her own personal brand, boldly and very quickly. By the mid-1940s, Hopper had made a name for herself through her relentlessly politicized coverage of a number of stories that, in anyone else's hands, would have remained squarely what was known as soft news. If Luella Parsons had staked her claim on defending the right of the film industry to operate freely in the marketplace without intervention from the state, Hedda Hopper made her own name on dragging celebrity stories into the realm of political inquiry, and vice versa, permanently blurring the lines between the sections of the paper coded as entertainment and those deemed hard news. In today's episode, we'll dissect two Hollywood scandals bookending World War II that Hopper turned into political scandals one involving the biggest movie of the era, and the other involving one of the biggest comedians of all time. In between, we'll talk about how Luella Parsons lost sight of her mission to protect the film industry from censorship when she felt compelled to protect William Randolph Hearst from a little film called Citizen Kane. So wrapped up in her very real mandate to protect the interests of her employer, Parsons would finally throw all pretense of impartiality out the window. Join us, won't you, for part four of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. 
Luella Parsons' approach to World War II was dictated, like most of her life, by Hearst. In the 1930s, Hearst, who had been pushed from the far political left all the way to the right by his hatred of FDR, openly embraced both Adolf Hitler, who Hearst positioned as the ultimate anti-communist, and American nationalism. When Trump first started using the phrase, America first, in 2016, many pointed out that this had been the name of an anti-war, Nazi-friendly organization officially launched in 1940. But it was in use during the First World War. Woodrow Wilson had attempted to avoid that conflict by saying he believed in focusing on America first. And Hearst adopted it from there, putting the phrase America first above the masthead of his papers. After Pearl Harbor, Hearst began hyping the importance of Allied victory while heavily demonizing the Japanese. Luella made a big show of doing her part for the war effort, selling war bonds and whatnot. And when it suited her, when it gave her an opportunity to attack favorite targets such as Mae West and Greta Garbo, she shamed stars for not doing enough. But her columns would pair milk-toast arguments for American patriotism with invective against Japanese Americans, calling them vermin. Both Hearst and Luella supported Japanese internment in their personal lives and in the paper. By contrast, Hedda became a Hollywood columnist in 1938 as war was already on the horizon, and opposing the war was part of her identity from the beginning. All the way up until Pearl Harbor in December 1941, she strenuously pushed an isolationist message. She was hardly a pacifist. She advocated for Fortress America, a plan for a massive buildup of U.S. military might. As she wrote in September 1939, Let's stay home and prepare a defense so strong no one will dare attack us, so that when they've made another hash of Europe, we can give what's left of civilization a shelter and new hope. Hedda would often present her opposition to America's involvement in World War II as coming from a mother. In the late 30s and early 40s, Hedda's son Bill was in his 20s, and she didn't want him to be drafted. But this mother was also an unrepentant nationalist. Like many Americans who had lived through the First World War, Hopper believed that this time, Europe should fight its own battles. But she took it a step further, implying that Europe was not worth defending, being as it was the homeland of the United States working-class immigrants, such as the Italians and the Irish and Jews. Once Hollywood became a popular destination for artists, writers, and performers, fleeing either persecution or the potential destruction of their countries of origin, she began complaining that these refugees were taking jobs from Americans who, quote, can speak English without an accent. One visitor had a welcomed in 1938 was Lenny Riefenstahl. This was three years after Riefenstahl had made her epic work of Nazi propaganda 
triumph of the will. And she was absolutely inextricably linked to Hitler and the Nazi party. American newspapers habitually referred to her as Hitler's girlfriend. When she arrived in the United States in the fall of 1938 to promote Olympia, her film about the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the Hollywood Anti-Defamation League took out an ad in Variety, announcing that Riefenstahl was unwelcome in the U.S. movie colony and that U.S. studios should bar her from visiting. The only studio head who did welcome Riefenstahl on that trip was Walt Disney. But the papers chronicled her every move. Hedda mentioned Lenny Riefenstahl several times in her columns of December 1938, each time defending her right to come to America to promote her movie and dismissing any reaction against her as overblown. But other than Lenny Riefenstahl, Hedda Hopper vociferously opposed foreigners in Hollywood. She was particularly aggressive about the idea of British actors playing American characters. And there was no more American character than Scarlett O'Hara, heroine of Gone with the Wind. While Hedda's column usually functioned as a kind of mini-magazine, breezing through half a dozen different subjects on a quarter page of newsprint, on one day in January 1939, her entire column was taken up with one issue, the casting of British actors Vivian Lee and Leslie Howard in David O. Selznick's adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's slavery-era novel. Hopper wrote that when she got the call about the casting, she thought, Why call me? Why not the House of Parliament in England and say, well, you've won again? Hedda primed the pump, and in a subsequent column, ran letters from readers protesting the casting, encouraging a movement to boycott the movie unless the parts were recast with American actors. Nowadays, it might be difficult to understand the subtext here. After all, today's Hollywood is dominated by stars from various corners of the British Empire, and we have different issues of xenophobia closer to the front of our minds. But readers in 1939 would have detected the dog-whistling embedded in Hedda's campaign. In late 1938, Hitler had virtually dared the United Kingdom to either join his racist plight for world domination or try to stop it by branding the British, quote, the Jew among the Aryan people. England would not declare war on Germany until September 1939. But when Hedda was fomenting anti-English feelings nine months earlier, the idea that the British were equivalent to European Jews, and that like the Jews, the Brits were liable to trick the U.S. into defending them, was already in the air. Then, when Jewish producer Selznick defended the casting of Lee by saying that the time had come for everyone to, quote, do everything within our power to help cement British-American relationships and mutual sympathies, Hedda printed responses from her readers full of barely-veiled anti-Semitism. One reader accused Selznick of favoring his European forebears and forgetting that 
America comes first, last, and always. America first was by then code for anti-European and anti-Jew, but the construction America first, last, and always had been in the air at least since 1927, when it was the campaign slogan of William Hale Thompson, a Chicago mayor who was in the pocket of Al Capone and who specifically ran on severing political and economic ties to Britain. To sum up, Hedda and her readers were heavily implying that a Jewish Hollywood producer had taken a text of Civil War revisionist history that many had embraced as a nostalgic throwback to the good old days of default white supremacy and had distorted it to serve as an implicit call to war on behalf of the British and European Jews. Gone with the Wind, already a prism reflecting and refracting so much in American culture, now became an excuse for a referendum on whether or not America should either engage in a foreign war or else seek cover in the anti-Semitic ideology of America first. When Hedda actually saw the finished film, she pivoted to praising Gone with the Wind as an anti-war movie, which she hoped would be enough to inspire the U.S. to stay out of the European conflict. Of course, that's one of the major problems with Gone with the Wind. It argues that war is futile, but the war it depicts is the civil war. Hedda was the type of conservative who would tell you that just because she believed the civil war shouldn't have happened, that didn't mean she was racist. She loved Black people. Black people like Stepin Fetchett and Butterfly McQueen, who pantomimed subservience to thrill largely white audiences. Hedda was a fervent isolationist for as long as she could get away with it, promoting known communist Dalton Trumbo's anti-war novel, Johnny Get Your Gun, and endorsing America First candidate Charles Lindbergh as late as the fall of 1941. In 1942, she used her column to defend Lou Ayers, the popular star of the Dr. Kildare movie series, as well as the anti-war classic, All Quiet on the Western Front, who had registered as a conscientious objector. Hedda took up his cause, and in so doing, took credit for taking an unpopular stance against the whole of Hollywood. This was not true. Although Ayers' movies were boycotted by veterans groups, and MGM fired him from his franchise. Several major stars came out in defense of Ayers, including Humphrey Bogart. Hedda Hopper wasn't comfortable on the same side of any political issue as Bogart, and soon enough, she pivoted to her own second front, throwing the bulk of her artillery at a performer she perceived to be Hollywood's most dangerous liberal. Charlie Chaplin. We'll talk about that later in this episode. First, after the break, Luella Parsons versus Citizen Kane. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. 
On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1940, the United Press tried to poach Parsons away from Hearst. They offered a massive increase in salary and the opportunity to own the rights to her radio shows. In her book, Tell It to Luella, Parsons claimed that she slept on the offer, but turned it down. I kept recalling all of Mr. Hearst's kindnesses, all the things he had done for me. For me, as a person, as Luella Parsons, not for an employee, I know I'd never be happy working for anyone but Mr. Hurst. So she re-upped her contract with him, at the same rate, with no new perks, except for a diamond pin, which the chief sent with a note that included the phrase, We belong in the same boat. This whole thing doesn't make a ton of sense. Even if Hearst was, as she would later write, the best friend I have ever had, shouldn't that friendship have been able to survive her taking a sweetheart deal elsewhere? And if she was such a good friend and valued employee, why wouldn't Hearst offer her a raise himself? Does Hearst's reference to the same boat give credence to the rumors that Luella and Hearst conspired to cover up the true cause of Thomas Ince's death on Hearst's boat after all? I persist in believing that where conspiracies flourish, usually either the most boring or most ironic explanation is the one that's the most true. We don't have a lot of varied sources to go on here. As far as I can tell, the only documentation of the United Press offer is found in Luella's own book, which Luella's biographer retells but does not analyze or question. So it's possible that Luella just made this up to make it look like she was in demand elsewhere, but that her loyalty to Hearst took precedence over her own personal bottom line. Her undying loyalty certainly helped to justify what happened next. Around the same time Luella was supposedly turning down a significant pay raise to prove her commitment to Hearst, Herbert Mankiewicz was beginning to write the screenplay that would become the movie Citizen Kane. You may have seen or heard of the David Fincher movie Mank, which you could argue contains some distorted or disputed versions of events, but which I think pretty powerfully dramatizes why someone like Mankiewicz who had been part of Hearst's inner circle years before, would feel the disillusion necessary to write the greatest movie-as-subtweet of all time. Luella doesn't appear to have learned about the existence of Citizen Kane until the summer of 1940, when, after returning from travels that included a visit to the Republican National Convention, she was invited to a cocktail party Wells and RKO were hosting to toast the beginning of the film's production. 
Luella declined to attend because MGM was screening the new Clark Gable movie Boomtown on the same night. Though Parsons would later describe herself as being one of Wells's biggest early boosters, Luella had already been demonstrably dismissive to Wells in her column, rolling her eyes at his pretensions, and at one point referring to him as, quote, a young man who talks too much. She also complained that Wells did too little. In early 1940, she addressed three questions to Wells in her column. Why are you wearing a beard in the first place? Are you going to make a picture? How long do you think you can keep going without producing anything? This was before rumors began to get around town that Citizen Kane was a vicious takedown of Hearst as a dilettante newspaper publisher who spends a fortune on a failed bid to ensure fame for his blonde mistress. Both Hearst and Parsons were aware of such rumors by the time Luella had lunch with Wells in his cane dressing room. Based on that lunch, she wrote a glowing profile, typical of how she repaid exclusive access to talent, in which she branded Wells brilliant. That afternoon, Wells didn't have to work too hard to throw Luella off the scent of the real target of his movie. When she asked him if Citizen Kane was about Hearst, Wells said, It deals with a dead man. You know, when a man dies, there is a great difference of opinion about his character. Oh. Well, Hearst wasn't dead, so it must not be about him. Luella came away from the meeting convinced of just that and told Hearst he had nothing to worry about. Months went by, and while the rest of Hollywood came to understand that Wells was lying to Luella, Luella did not. And then, in January 1941, a magazine called Friday published a feature on Kane in which it mocked Luella for being so easily snowed. In that piece, Wells was quoted as saying, wait until the woman finds out that the picture's about her boss. Wells immediately sent Parsons a telegram saying that the quote was made up. But Wells was playing a dangerous game. While pulling the wool over Parsons' eyes, Orson was feeding Hedda Hopper. Believing that he and Hedda were friends and that, as a former actress, she would appreciate the aesthetic mastery of what he had made, Wells had allowed her to come to a screening of Citizen Kane. When the lights came on after the film, Hedda stood up and told Wells that he had committed an outrage against a great American. You won't get away with this, Hedda threatened. Orson, who hadn't lost yet, said, I think I will. Wells had made a major error, and it was because he didn't understand two things. First, Luella and Hedda were both allergic to actual artistic genius. They loved to take greatness down a peg and promote mediocrity. This was part of the way they enforced the power structure, which relied on the idea that no one involved with movies deserved more credit than the men who ran the studios. Second, 
Hedda would take any opportunity to make Luella Parsons look bad. She immediately called Hearst to tell him that contrary to what he might have heard from his own columnist, he should be very concerned about Citizen Kane. I don't know why Luella hasn't told you this picture is about you. Perhaps counting on Luella's demonstrated dimness on this matter, Wells agreed to host a screening the next day for Parsons and Hearst's legal team. This time, Luella didn't miss what was right in front of her. By that night, she and Hearst had pacted to stop Citizen Kane in its tracks. Luella then proceeded to pull out all the stops. First, she called RKO executive George Schaefer and threatened to expose the private foibles of everyone on the studio's executive board through what she called fictionized stories printed across the Hearst syndicate. Then, Hearst attacked the heads of the other studios, hinting that all the stories he had made gentlemen's agreements to keep out of his papers over the years, including many about the executives themselves, including charges of rape, could be easily published now. Some believed that Hearst also used the Jewish mogul's collective fear of anti-Semitism against them by suggesting that RKO's Schaefer was no friend to the Jews. This mattered because RKO owned the fewest movie theaters of any production outfit. They needed MGM, Fox, and all the other theater-rich studios to make deals with them to exhibit RKO movies. But with minimal harassment from Hearst and Parsons, all the other studios caved, as did the owners of Radio City Music Hall. Under continued pressure, the studio chiefs pooled their resources and offered to pay RKO $800,000 to have Citizen Kane destroyed. RKO's Schaefer turned the offer down. They had decided to gamble that all this publicity, plus great reviews, would increase public demand to see the thing, if they could find any movie theaters that would show it. With Parsons putting all her power towards trying to stop Citizen Kane from ever reaching the public, Hedda Hopper saw an opening to differentiate herself from her rival. She ran a six-part series on her radio show about Orson Welles' life and work. In a letter to Hearst, Parsons complained that Hopper was working against them. I think she's a louse after pretending to be a friend. That's how she spoke of Hedda privately. Publicly, around this same time, Parsons told an interviewer, She's trying to do in two years what it took me 30 years to do. And I resent some of the things she says about me. In this climate, Citizen Kane became the center of a tug of war between Hearst and his partisans and the large number of people from all other quarters who saw an opportunity to stick it to Hearst, or Luella. Henry Luce, the publisher of Life and Time magazines, would in the 1940s devote pages of his magazines to promoting Hedda Hopper, because it was a roundabout way of expressing his hatred for Hearst. 
1941, Luce jumped into the gossip wars in a big way by very publicly offering to buy Citizen Kane from RKO for $1 million. He believed the studio would, at the last minute, get cold feet and refuse to release the movie. Luce claimed that if he owned it, he'd make sure the public got a chance to see it and judge it and Hearst for themselves. Maybe things would have been different for Kane and Wells if RKO had called Luce's bluff. As it was, they hemmed and hawed for months and finally opened the movie in a scant number of theaters to indifferent box office. After Kane opened at the El Capitan in Hollywood to tumbleweeds, Parsons sent a gleefully sarcastic message to Hearst. It's considered the greatest flop Hollywood has ever seen. I am so sorry. I am crying. And I thought you would be sad about it, too. Happy to hold a grudge, she continued to blacklist Wells, Joseph Cotton, and others involved with Kane from her column for years. And RKO's entire slate was banned, too. At least until Luella's daughter went to work for the studio. But we'll discuss that next week. Her missive to Hearst suggests Luella was awfully proud of herself. And from a certain perspective, her crippling of Citizen Kane shows that at this moment, she was at the peak of her powers. But ultimately, Parsons did not come out of this looking too good. The New York Times and Newsweek were amongst the publications which painted Parsons as an enemy of free speech. On those terms, in the long view, Luella's actions against Orson Welles look even worse, given that she spent her entire life patting herself on the back for having defended D.W. Griffith's right of free speech on the birth of a nation. And though the rest of Hollywood was not exactly jumping to publicly support Wells, privately, many thought Luella had gone too far. This time, MGM, Warner Brothers, and all the other studios aside from RKO came out unscathed. But now that everyone had seen what Parsons was capable of, it was worth asking, what was stopping her from turning her behind-the-scenes muscle on them. That year, there would be signs that the Hollywood power structure was no longer willing to kowtow to Luella's demands. On August 6th, Luella's birthday, the studios rescinded their policy of offering Parsons 48-hour exclusives on their best news tidbits. By day, Parsons pretended she wasn't pressed, assuring Hearst that her best scoops didn't come from studio publicists anyway. But that night, at her birthday party, Parsons got terrifically drunk and ended the night by calling several friends to complain about how mean everyone was being to her. By the time the U.S. entered World War II, the studios were generally giving 60% of their exclusive to Luella and 40% to Hedda. Luella felt desperate to regain what she felt was lost ground. 
So when she was offered a chance to write her autobiography, Luella jumped on it because she felt like it would be a chance to reshape her reputation just as she liked it. It was in this book called The Gay Illiterate that she refashioned her origin story, calling herself a war widow who had to become a female pioneer in both the movie industry and the writing about movies industry so that she could buy her baby shoes. But the writing process itself distracted her, so she was largely on the sidelines of what would spiral into one of the biggest stories of the next two decades, for Hedda. Charlie Chaplin was one of Hedda's favorite targets. In her column, she frequently criticized him for being a foreigner who took advantage of American freedom and capitalism without ever trying to become an American citizen. She also implied more than once that he was a secret Jew. But what infuriated her most was that he didn't care about her. He didn't care if he got left out of her column. He didn't care if he made it in. He didn't need her. Most stars played Hedda and Luella's games because they were made to feel that they had to in order to maintain or increase their fame. But Charlie Chaplin was too famous as it was, and he wasn't going to bow down to any gossip columnist for any reason. This was bad enough for Hedda's ego, but in 1940, Chaplin rose to the absolute top of her shit list by making The Great Dictator, a hit film that powerfully made the case for intervention into the war to stop Hitler. We talked about this film and the controversy surrounding it and Chaplin's subsequent paternity scandal in an episode of this podcast in 2015. We're going to talk about it again here because A, that was a long time ago, and B, Hedda Hopper was mentioned exactly once in that episode. At the time, I had more to say about Chaplin's connections to Hitler and how his anti-fascist activism stirred the ire of J. Edgar Hoover. You should listen to that episode, either before or after you finish this one. But today, we're going to re-examine this story while centering Hopper, who was Hoover's most important ally in his campaign against Chaplin. As I noted in that previous episode, Chaplin had a habit of quote-unquote romancing very young women, like, in some cases, teenagers. He was not the only adult man doing this in Hollywood or elsewhere. This is one place where we can sort of say that it was a different time, in that the age of consent was 16 in the 1920s and 30s, in many states and also in Chaplin's native UK. But feminists and reformers were actively working to change these laws to prevent men from preying on girls who were not mature enough to offer consent. So it's safe to say that public opinion about relationships between adult men and teenage girls was mixed. Hedda Hopper consistently attacked Charlie Chaplin for his relationships with women, critiquing his preference for much younger partners and accusing him of luring impressionable girls onto casting couches, having his way with them, 
and then tossing them aside. This was something a lot of powerful men in Hollywood did, but Hedda didn't call most of them out. In the Chaplin case, the evidence suggests that Hopper was weaponizing the protection of young women and girls as part of an agenda to forward an anti-Semitic political conspiracy. Not unlike QAnon. The scandal that Hopper helped to create, which had lasting damage on Chaplin's career, involved an adult woman. Joan Barry was an actress who met Chaplin in 1941, when she was 21. According to an article referencing Chaplin's FBI files, which were declassified in the 1980s, by 1941, Barry had tried and failed to break into the movie business several times. She had been in a relationship with another rich and powerful man, J. Paul Getty, who introduced her to Tim Durant, a man about town in Hollywood, who introduced Barry first to Spencer Tracy and then to Chaplin. Barry and Chaplin hit it off right away, and he signed her to a contract at a bargain basement rate of $75 a week. After a couple of weeks, they began sleeping together. Chaplin was grooming Barry to star in a film called Shadow and Substance. He paid for her to have her teeth fixed, sent her to acting classes, and bought her a fur coat. During the time they were together, Barry had two abortions, both paid for by Chaplin. Then, in early 1942, Chaplin ended their romantic relationship. He still intended to make Shadow and Substance and to have Barry star in it. But according to him, she started showing up at his house at all hours of the night, drunk. Chaplin began making political speeches, and in October 1942, he traveled to New York to address a big rally of an organization called the Artists' Front to Win the War. Barry and her mother came to New York, too, and Barry later claimed Chaplin had paid for her transport because he wanted her with him while he made his speech. Chaplin would claim he wanted to get Barry out of Los Angeles, hoping she'd stay on the East Coast as a way of softly breaking his commitment to work with her. Three months later, Barry bought two guns and went to Chaplin's house in Los Angeles, broke in through a back window, and threatened Chaplin at gunpoint for an hour. He managed to get her to surrender her weapons, and she spent the night at his house. She claimed they had sex that night. He claimed they did not. A week later, Barry showed up at Chaplin's house again. He called the police, and she was given a 90-day suspended sentence. After that, Chaplin canceled Shadow and Substance, severing his last official tie to Barry. Then Barry showed up at Chaplin's house again to tell him that she was pregnant and the baby was his. Chaplin was now in a relationship with Una O'Neill, who he would soon marry and stay with for the rest of his life. Now, Chaplin called the police again, and because this was a violation of Barry's parole, she was sent to a prison sanitarium for 30 days and ordered to leave Los Angeles on her release. 
Instead, she went to Hedda Hopper. By 1943, if you wanted to get a negative story about Charlie Chaplin's sex life into a newspaper, you would go to Hedda Hopper, because it was clear that she had this agenda against him, and also, she was notorious for rushing to print without bothering to check her facts. So the smartest thing Joan Barry ever did was to walk into Hedda Hopper's office. According to Hopper, the 23-year-old Barry made quite a first impression. From her wild eyes, I knew she was on the borderline of something desperate. Hopper's first story on Barry was timed to coincide with a paternity suit filed against Chaplin. Hopper proceeded to use her column to make Barry's case for a large cash settlement. She hammered home the narrative that Chaplin had used and abused Barry promising her a star-making role and then ripping it away from her when he lost interest in her sexually. Then, when the poor girl told the heartless bastard that she was with his child, he had had her arrested. Now she was penniless and alone, abandoned by the father of her baby who had millions. Hopper's largely conservative readership, who liked the Los Angeles Times because it presented to them a fantasy version of the world in which the only politicians were Republicans and the only people whose interests mattered were white, American-born, business-minded Christians, were primed to thrill to attacks on Chaplin's supposed amoral decadence. A lot of those readers were probably men who had their own sexual skeletons, who were experiencing some brand of schadenfreude. They felt Charlie Chaplin an immigrant and possible Jew whose Hollywood-derived fortune was nouveau and inherently illegitimate, deserved to have his sex life exposed. Chaplin took a blood test, which would ultimately reveal that he was probably not the father of Barry's baby. This test would not be admissible in court, and Hedda never mentioned it in her column. The first paternity trial ended with a deadlocked jury. The second jury decided Chaplin was the father and was responsible for child support. Chaplin did support Barry's daughter for 21 years. But by the time the FBI was done with Chaplin, the paternity issue would seem besides the point. When Chaplin's FBI files were released, they revealed that Barry had been fully cooperating with the Bureau. And you could read the paper trail and infer that Barry was actually installed in Chaplin's life to ensure his downfall. Even if that wasn't the case, once she started working with Hedda Hopper, Joan Barry was one degree of separation from FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover, who was one of Hopper's closest confidants. Hopper and Hoover collaborated with one another. She gave him evidence that came to her through the gossip grapevine, and he gave her information that the FBI wanted to make public. They were united in the goal to destroy Chaplin, who they both believed was a dangerously influential Jewish communist. Working together, they came up with a plan B to use Barry to nail Chaplin. 
In February 1944, the federal government indicted Charlie Chaplin for violating the Mann Act, which was a so-called white slavery statute that made it illegal to pay to transport a woman across state lines with the intention of having sex with her. The feds argued that Chaplin had paid for Barry to travel to New York in October 1942 for sexual purposes. These charges were specious at best, but Hopper pretended otherwise. After testifying before a grand jury to ensure the indictment, she used the Mann Act indictment as a second cudgel against Chaplin in her column. When Chaplin was acquitted, Hopper ignored the news and evolved into arguing that Chaplin's moral turpitude should be grounds for his deportation. Here, Hedda was laying track for her friend, J. Edgar Hoover, who was now determined to prove that Chaplin was a foreign agent. It took nearly a decade of continuous pressure. But finally, in 1952, at the peak of the Hollywood blacklist, Chaplin went to London for the premiere of his film, Limelight, and was informed that the U.S. had revoked his re-entry permit. If he wanted to come back to the U.S., he would have to submit to an interview with federal authorities. Chaplin decided that wasn't worth the trouble or the risk. And instead, he chose what amounted to self-deportation. And thus, in Hedda Hopper's hands, and more crucially, in the pages of her newspaper column, the story of Charlie Chaplin and Joan Barry would morph from a sex and paternity scandal into a scandal of international politics. Long after Chaplin had been essentially scared off from attempting to enter the United States, when his cinematic output had dwindled to just about one film per decade, Hedda Hopper was still plotting against him. In 1966, just a few days before she died, Hedda called columnist Flora Bell Muir and said, I hear that son of a bitch Chaplin is trying to get back in this country. We've all got to work together to stop him. Enough was never enough for Hedda Hopper. Her obsession with exposing private lives under the guise of national interest and international affairs would presage the post-war phenomenon that would fully destroy the line between entertainment and political news, the blacklist. Hopper would be one of the key enforcers of the blacklist, and we will talk about that in two weeks. First, in our next episode, we're going to take a detour to talk about the only person who could, even temporarily, bring Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons together. Luella's daughter, Harriet Parsons, who was both a groundbreaking female film producer and a closeted gay woman. Join us for her story next week, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. 
Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, At Home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch, like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 